Hi, I'm Brian Pearson. This is the Mystic Cave. We were born before the wind. Also younger than the sun. And our bonnet boat was one as we sailed into the mystic. The Mystic Cave is a sanctuary for the seeker. Stories, conversations, and reflections about the spiritual journey on the other side of Churchland. In this episode, my family has moved from the West Coast to the West Island of Montreal. It was an altogether strange new world, made even stranger because we arrived once the fall school term had already begun. This was our first taste, my brother and sister and I, of being the new kids. It would never become easier. It was also my first taste of religion that's not welcoming. In fact, the tensions between the Protestants and Catholics confused me, even as I learned just to keep my religion to myself. There were too many other navigations as I entered my teens to get stuck on my religious identity. There was my budding career as a rock and roll star. I continue reading from my memoir, Lost Rites, Leaving Churchland, Chapter 2, Part 1. Frogs. I hate to say it, but my first impression of Montreal was frogs. 1961 must have been one of nature's cyclical plague years. Some years it's grasshoppers, some years it's earwigs. That year, it was frogs, and it was biblical. They were hopping across parking lots, lingering under street lights, croaking from the tall grass, and most horrifyingly, flattened every which way on the asphalt like cardboard cutouts of frogs. There was also smoke from a hundred fireplaces. It was fall, the evenings were cool and still, and the smoke curled upward from a silhouette of rooftops set against an orange sky. The scent that filled the air was not sweet and soft, like cedar. It was the pinching odor of burning hardwood, of birch and maple. We'd never smelt anything like it. The move had been sudden, We were put up in a motel until my parents could find us a house to rent or to buy. Dad would go off to his new job each morning. Mom would drive us around during the day, sometimes with a real estate agent, seeking out promising neighborhoods. But driving too slowly, we'd pass kids on their way to school. We wanted to see what they'd looked like, but instead, embarrassed and self-conscious, we slunk down in our seats so they couldn't see us. The strangeness might have been mitigated had we found a church right away. But the churches in and around Bederfe, where we ended up, all seemed the same. New, modern, suburban, and cool, in the sense of being aloof, unfriendly even. They were so unlike little St. Martin's. We tried several and ended up at the one around the corner from the house my parents eventually settled on, if only for the convenience of it. I remember almost nothing about that church, a 1950s A-frame sanctuary with a parish hall where I met with my new cub pack, 
a Saturday morning gathering in the parking lot for a bottle drive. The church was right across the road from the new school we attended, a public school, though I didn't know at first what difference that made. It turned out it made a big difference. There was an invisible dividing line that zigzagged through the neighborhood. It went down the middle of streets and between houses. Sometimes it went right through a house and presumably through a bedroom. Your church and your school put you on one side of that line or the other, and it was a battle line. So it mattered that we attended that school and that church and that we didn't attend another, especially one of the two big Catholic churches in neighboring St. Anne de Bellevue. One day after school, my friend David Marshall and I made our way home on the right-of-way beneath the power lines. Following a narrow path through the tall grass, we talked as we walked along. Suddenly, the Golden Twins, that was their last name, plus a few of their pals, leapt out of the grass and set upon David, tackling him and roughing him up. They were Catholics, and they had some bone to pick with him, a Protestant. I was so startled and so horrified that I backed away. Come on, David, I called. Let's go home. Eventually, they let him go. That made me wonder about every kid who approached me up the street, Protestant or Catholic, friend or foe. Now, when kitchen curtains parted as I walked by, I wondered if someone was thinking the same thing about me. It made me alert, like a child soldier on patrol, but not like a game at all, like war. I was relieved when we moved again. The Woodward-Steinberg's merger failed after a year and we were sent back home to North Vancouver. But my father was unhappy to find himself doing his old job under his old boss. So using his Montreal contacts, he took a job with the Hudson's Bay Company and we moved back again to Montreal this time settling in Pointe Claire, a West Island neighborhood a little closer into the city than Bédurfe. By then, as a preteen, the stakes had grown higher along those religious dividing lines. It didn't matter whether or not I was known personally by the Catholic kids on our new street, whether or not they had a bone to pick with me. Being Protestant was enough. My classmate Arthur and I, with not much else in common, were the only two Protestant kids our age on a narrow street teeming with large Catholic families. We stuck together for protection. It heartened me temporarily soon after we moved in when a bunch of the local boys, a number of them brothers from the boisterous house across the street, let me join them in a game of street hockey. They put me in goal. The rule was no slap shots. But the first shot that came my way left the pavement from about ten feet out, nailing me right below the kneecap. They all watched in silence, exchanging smirks and glances as I limped home. Another evening, riding my bike, I cut through the parking lot of an apartment complex. I rounded the corner, smack into a gang of Catholic boys who were lurking about, waiting for someone just like me to come along. Panicking, I stood up on my pedals and sped right through the midst of them. I felt their hands grabbing for me, trying to catch me and throw me off. It was a close call. My sister Lorraine received a similar welcome from children her age on that street. Two little girls knocked at the door one day to meet the new kid. They asked Lorraine if she was Catholic or Protestant. Lorraine said she didn't know she'd have to go and ask her mom. 
She returned to tell them she was Protestant. Then they couldn't play with her, the girl said. They turned to walk away. And by the way, one tossed back over her shoulder, there's no such thing as Santa Claus. This was also new to us. Religion had been a unifying reality in our lives back in North Vancouver. We were aware of other churches, of course, and of other religions, too. I had visited several of them as part of a summer program at St. Martin's, including a bar mitzvah at a synagogue. It was intriguing, not frightening. It had never occurred to us that religion could be a sword that divides. Now it did. My parents developed a peculiar approach to relocation. Rent first, take time to look around, then move again once they were ready to buy, even if that meant to a new neighborhood. I can only assume this worked for them, and I'm sure they thought it worked for us, short-term pain being related to long-term gain and all that. But this approach had its downside. It inserted an additional move into each move we made, making matters worse for us, not better, especially when that meant changing schools again. One of the compounding problems for Greg, Lorraine, and me was that in all these moves, we never quite managed to arrive before the new term had begun. Inevitably, we would be walked into the classroom mid-morning by the principal, his hand on our shoulder, before the wolf-pack stares of our new classmates. As excruciating as this was for me, it was traumatizing for my brother and sister, who were both shy to begin with. Greg remains bitter to this day about all those moves and how awful they were for him. Lorraine says that her life only really began years later, after her school days were left far behind. Maybe it's a middle child thing, maybe it's just genes, but driven by a need to be noticed, I did the opposite of my brother and sister. While they tried to make themselves invisible, I sought out the spotlight. I would survey my new classroom for impressionable classmates as if scanning an audience. Then I would become their daily source of entertainment. This got me into trouble with my teachers. But I wasn't doing it for them. It was in the eyes of the pack that I needed to be seen and to make my mark. Our house on the Catholic street in Point Claire proved to be temporary, a rental, when my parents found the house they wanted to buy, it was in the new suburb of Beacon Hill in neighboring Beaconsfield. I had just turned 13 when we moved again. I was going into grade 7. I'd survived life among the Catholics, and I was ready to burn up my new stage. My parents sent me to a speech therapist to help me lose the impediment that might have blocked my way to popularity and fame, though I doubt that's how they saw it. They were probably just embarrassed to have a kid who talked funny. I might have figured things out for myself by then, except that my grade four teacher had thrown me off by suggesting I should put my tongue in the front of my mouth to overcome my impediment and try rolling my R's. That had me sounding like a Scotsman, which I guess was better than a cartoon character, but still a problem. The therapist listened to me talk. My name is Brian Pearson. My father works in retail, and my mother is a nurse. And then she made a radical suggestion. Try placing your tongue at the back of your mouth when you say the letter R. I tried it. R. 
Arr, arr. It worked like a charm. In seconds, I went from being a Scotsman to an Irishman. Now every day could be talk like a pirate day. Har! This was going to be brilliant. My brother remembers our first day of school in Beaconsfield. He came home and flopped on his bed, exhausted by the ordeal. The doorbell rang. He got up and went down to answer it. Two or three kids my age were standing there, wondering if Brian was home. I think Greg's resentment of me began on that day. The bullying started soon afterward. By grade eight, the next year, I had grown tight with my new buddy Dave. He had moved to Montreal from Toronto. He played a red electric guitar and was one of the funniest guys I knew. His parents let him stay up to watch Johnny Carson, so most days he came to school a bit tired, but with a new shtick he'd learned the night before. One time, during lunch hour in the cafeteria, he hid raisins up his sleeves. Then he announced he was going to make a rabbit appear. He said the magic words. When the rabbit didn't materialize, he lowered his arms and out fell the raisins onto the table. Well, he's up there somewhere, he said. My other friend in Beaconsfield was Rob. He was tall, perpetually tanned and handsome, with dark, wavy hair. He was quietly confident, unlike Dave and me, who were constantly falling over each other with our jokes. Of course, Rob was a magnet for the girls. Lori, the one who got him first, would hang off his shoulder at the corner while we waited for the school bus to arrive. Sometimes they would neck on the bus until some snoopy adult saw them and reported it to the principal. He called them into his office and told them to stop it. We were all outraged, adults. We were never going to become like them. Dave and I even made a pact. Whichever of us caved in first and got his hair cut short would have to buy the other a Hammond B3 organ, coveted by both of us as the coolest rock and roll instrument ever. Our family found a new church, St. Mary's in Kirkland, which wasn't the coolest anything, but it was pretty savvy when it came to young people. I had started to play the guitar by then, and Father Conliffe, our new priest, took note of it. When I began playing in a band, he wondered if some of my friends and I might be interested in leading a folk service on Sunday nights at the church. He had my number all right. I became a member of the youth group, we met during worship on Sunday mornings, partly so we didn't actually have to attend church. I joined the confirmation class of 67, which proved timely. It turned out that some of the most popular girls in school were also Anglicans, and they were getting confirmed too, though this wasn't something we dwelt on. There were 41 of us in our class photo, taken the day of the ceremony, including John Wolfe, the high school bully, my new brother in Christ. I don't recall ever seeing him in church after that, but he left me alone whenever he was looking for someone to fight in the schoolyard. I hated all our moves. I hated the enormous upheaval they caused in my life. But each move gave me a new stage on which to make a splash. To this day, I gravitate towards leadership not only from a sense of public service, but also because, as a leader, I get noticed. I stand out in the crowd. It may not be the noblest means of making one's way in the world, or in the church for that matter, but I think neither the church nor the world is worse off for it having been mine.
the classroom provided me only limited access to an audience. Like exercise time in a prison yard, your steps had to be small, you had to stay in line, and there was always someone keeping watch. But rock and roll. Now that was something you could do large, outside of school, and then turn around and bring it back into school for Friday night dances. I don't recall how it happened, but I ended up in a rock band with guys who were all a year older than me. I couldn't play my instrument very well, but I could sing, so I guess that's what got me in. At first we called ourselves The Things to Come, sensing our future greatness. Then Al, our drummer, started reading James Michener, and we became The Source. I'm not sure what our band had to do with the history of the Jewish people, so maybe Al hadn't got too far along in the book when he suggested it. The band already had a guitar player, so I switched to a portable electric organ. I can only imagine we were pretty bad at the beginning, but we practiced most weekends out in someone's garage or down in their unfinished basement. We started getting gigs at our school, at the local community center, and eventually beyond. The only extracurricular photographs of me that show up in Courtier, our high school yearbook, are with the band, playing on the gymnasium stage in our shiny, psychedelic shirts. There was another rock band at our school, a better band with a better name, the Baldwin County Blues Band. While we followed our chord charts, they copied the riffs and the growls of the original Chicago bluesmen. They were rough around the edges, as befits a blues band, and they were a little intimidating next to a clean-cut R&B band like us. So we became the Beatles to their Rolling Stones and got all the respectable gigs while they got all the long, screaming guitar solos. Presumably, they got all the girls, too. Greg played in a rock band as well, on drums. My parents were amazingly supportive of it all. Even as the walls of the house shuddered in time with the kick drum, they must have figured as long as we were practicing in their basement, we weren't out getting into trouble somewhere else. My dad even drove us to some of our gigs and picked us up afterwards, but they were right to suspect we could get into trouble. Within the shadows of the local music scene lurked a nascent drug and alcohol scene as well. I was 15 when Bill, whose last name may have rhymed with jail, leaned up against his locker in a hallway at our high school and purred to me as I walked by. Hey man, do you want to cop some dope? I knew neither of the two key words in that sentence, but he was a year older than I, and he was actually condescending to speak to me. So, of course, I was curious. I was still five years away from the legal drinking age in Quebec. None of us could drink alcohol without stealing it from our parents' liquor cabinets. But within weeks of my conversation with my new friend Bill, my friends and I were copping dope and smoking joints or inhaling the fumes of burning clumps of hashish. Not every weekend, but many. For the most part, it was occasional and recreational, nothing more. But it defined an exciting new world that was exclusively our own. No parents allowed. If this world was new to us, it was utterly foreign to our parents. When a friend's father called to the house one Sunday evening to report on what his son and I had been doing the preceding Friday, my father had a hard time comprehending what he was hearing. My friend Brian had invited me over to try some hash he'd bought. The plan was to smoke it in his bedroom, using incense to create literally a smokescreen to throw his mom off the scent. 
but he had never burned incense in his room before, so that served only to heighten her suspicions. She didn't know the difference between pot and incense anyway. When his father, an airline pilot, got home the next day and heard his mum's concerns, he beat the crap out of Brian, which got him the confession he was looking for and led to the call to my parents. The scene is etched with fear-fueled clarity in my mind. My grandmother was visiting us at the time. We were all in the family room watching a black-and-white documentary about the Russian Revolution. I was sitting in the big white chair. The phone rang in the kitchen. My father went to pick it up. I could only hear his half of the conversation. They did what? I don't understand. What's that? Well, thank you for telling me. I'll have a talk with them right now. My mother had heard too. She got up and joined my father in the kitchen. The blood drained from my face. I knew something was coming. My parents spoke in hushed tones for a few minutes, and then they called me into the living room, away from the others. Sitting on the couch, while I stood before them, they grilled me over what my father had just learned. Drugs? What kind of drugs? Where did I get them? Did I have any idea how dangerous this was? What did I have to say for myself? If my parents couldn't understand it, neither did the desk sergeant at the local police station when my father drove me there for a talking to. The officer wanted to know in minute detail what we had done. It was hashish. We had burned it on the lit end of a cigarette and inhaled it through a plastic pen barrel. He wrote it all down, asking me to be more and more specific. Apparently, it was all news to him. My father shook his head as the revelation spilled out. Then the officer put his pen down. Rising to his appointed role, he looked me in the eye. Drugs like these, he said, were very dangerous. They would only lead to harder things, like heroin and addiction. That was his warning to me, and then he let me go. My dad and I drove in silence back to the house where the whole scene was brought to its conclusion again in the living room. I stood once more before my bewildered parents, awaiting my sentence. My mother dabbed at her eyes with a tissue as my father delivered his last word on the subject. Okay, Brian, this has happened. We're very disappointed in you, but it won't happen again. Is that clear? I nodded. All right, then. We won't talk about this again. I was stunned. That was it? Well, okay. I sure wouldn't talk about it again if they didn't. That suited me just fine. By the next weekend, I was right back at it. But now, I had a great story to tell about how my own parents had turned me over to the cops. <laughs> yeah, that's adults for you. And when that fog on blows I will be coming home This has been a reading from my memoir, Lost Rights, Leaving Churchland. Thanks for listening. On the next episode, I'm given a new idea about God, who just might be more personal than I was really counting on or comfortable with. But that idea didn't help as once again the ground fell away from beneath me. Not only would we move again, but I would witness the painful disintegration of our family ties. We were falling apart. Join me 
as the journey continues. And let me know if these memories of mine awaken any of your own. You can write to me personally at mysticcaveman53 at gmail.com or leave a comment on Twitter at BrianEPearson1 with the hashtag TheMysticCave. I'm Brian Pearson. This has been The Mystic Cave. It's too late to stop now.